Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, I'm here today with Chris Eplett. He teaches in the history department at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. He specializes in ancient military and social history, the Hellenistic world and the later Roman Empire, as well as gladiatorial combat in the ancient world. He's appeared in multiple documentaries, including on the History Channel and Animal Planet, and he's the author of the book Gladiators, Deadly Arena Sports of Ancient Rome, which I believe was published in 2017. Do I have all that right, Chris? Is there anything that you need to add? Um, I don't think so. You you covered it pretty thoroughly, Patrick, and thanks for that introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I guess starting out, I, I'd just like to ask you a little bit more about your background and your interests and what sort of led you down this path to become one of the top experts in gladiators and the ancient world. Um, well, yeah, to... To sum it up very briefly, I've always been interested in history, not just uh, ancient, but, um, you know, my favorite was always ancient history. And um, I just, you know, there's not a huge job market necessarily for ancient historians, but I just kept going as long as I could keep my marks up. Uh, I figured if I couldn't find work, I'd, <laughs> I'd get a job outside of academia, but um I was very fortunate coming out of my doctorate that there was a job available at Lethbridge. Mm. So I went for my doctorate at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia, pretty well straight into my job at Lethbridge, which I've had the last 20 years or so. So I've been very fortunate in that regard. And um, in regard specifically to gladiatorial combat or arena spectacles, um, one thing that really piqued my interest while I was at UBC was a graduate a graduate class, a graduate seminar I took um, as part of my coursework, and it was specifically on the Roman arena. Hmm. And um, the topic I chose to wrote to write on was the Roman exotic animal spectacles, where they would bring you know lions, bears, what have you, into arenas like the Colosseum, and I remember being quite surprised, um, even though these spectacles were very popular in their own right, even though chronologically speaking, they actually lasted longer than the gladiatorial spectacles, mm. there wasn't nearly as much written on them. So again, my research into the animal spectacles basically started with this paper I wrote for this class at UBC. And then... Uh, I ended up writing my dissertation on the animal spectacles and, you know, that research in part um, formed some of the material for the, uh, the book on gladiators, which was published uh, a few years ago. So yeah, in a nutshell, <laughs> that's how I've reached this point when it comes to the arena and so forth. Well, and maybe we can just jump right into some of this stuff about exotic animal spectacles. I, I definitely wanted to ask you about this. I was reading your biography and stuff online last night, and this stood out because it's very different than 
what I think a lot of people imagine when they, you know, if, when people think of gladiators, they often think of the Coliseum, they think Mm of, you know, uh, soldiers fighting each other or slaves fighting each other or whatever. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that as well. But, uh, the animal thing really jumped out to me, how big of a part that was. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that originated? And, and, and I, I read that, uh, on your bio that they used, Hip, rhinos and hippos and all kinds of occasionally guys. yep yep so um, what, what was that all about <laughs> well uh the first thing to note is that um these animal spectacles don't um arise in a vacuum that the romans were certainly influenced at least to a degree by some of the stuff that had gone on earlier in other cultures um just to give you a few examples um if you look at some of the earlier cultures of the Near East, like the Assyrians, um, as well as the later Persians, they have a tradition. Well, first of all, with the Assyrians, they had a royal tradition of staged royal lion hunts, for example, but they would collect exotic animals. And some of these animals like lions would be hunted by the Assyrian king in carefully controlled environments because he didn't want the animal mauling the king to death or anything embarrassing like that. But yeah, uh, the kings would hunt these animals as a display of their royal power, their power over nature and so forth. Hmm. Um, and then subsequently, the Persians, who were certainly influenced to the Assyrians by an extent or to an extent, I should say, uh, they also had exotic animal preserves. In fact, uh, just a bit of word trivia. Uh, our word paradise actually comes from the ancient Persian term for these exotic animal enclosures. Mm. And what happens is Alexander the Great comes along, the Macedonian king, and he conquers the Persian Empire <laughs> as well as considerable other territory in the fourth century BCE. And he comes a he comes upon, of course, among other things, uh, these exotic animal enclosures maintained by the Persians. Mm. And subsequently, the subsequent Hellenistic kings, the subsequent Hellenistic dynasties, uh, many of which started with Alexander's former generals, they began collecting uh, exotic animals themselves. And on occasion, staging massive processions of these exotic animals, again, as a way to emphasize their wealth, their power over nature, and what have you. Hmm. Well, as Rome expands, she, of course, comes into increasing contact with Hellenistic kingdoms like Ptolemaic Egypt, for example, and the Romans, in turn, are influenced by these events. And the first real what we might term exotic animal spectacles in Rome uh, basically occurred during the Punic Wars with Carthage in the third century BCE when the Romans parade Carthaginian war elephants (laughs) uh, which they had captured from the Carthaginians through the streets of Rome and so forth. Mm. But at a certain point, or at least this is what I argue, the Romans evidently became bored somewhat with just, you know, simple processions of exotic animals. And they started 
<laughs> to pit them against each other um, in an arena. Uh, and this begins, or our first recorded instance of such com combat uh, basically comes from the early second century BCE. And I think one of the main reasons for this gradual trans transition is gladiatorial combat. Uh, gladiatorial combat in Rome had already gotten going, so to speak, in the mid third century BCE. And I think at a certain point, um, the Romans or Roman spectacle organizers, um, commonly known as editors or editores, realizing how popular gladiatorial combat was becoming this, you know, these combats between armed men uh, in a public met venue, they eventually got the bright idea, well, <laughs> why don't we do this with the exotic animals? We can either have the exotic animals fighting hunters, uh, human combatants in the arena, or we can have the exotic animals uh, fight each other. And then what happens, and again, I'm, <laughs> I'm summing things up rather quickly here, but what happens basically then by the beginning of the empire is a set day at the arena, we might say, uh, consists of three parts. You have the animal spectacles in the morning. Uh, you have the gladiatorial combat in the afternoon. And the lunchtime pause, or what we might term the halftime pause, is basically when the executions take place. Um, so if you want, you can you know remain seated during the halftime pause and watch the executions. Um, but yeah, that in a nutshell is how I think basically uh, these animal spectacles developed up, so, up to the beginning of the empire. It sounds like it was quite a violent day uh, for- Yes, yes. Now I should mention just to be, just to be fair uh, that um, displays of trained animals Nonviolent displays of trained animals did continue. Uh, they didn't disappear entirely, but the more popular event again appears to have been as time went on uh, animal combats, be it you know one animal against another animal or animals against uh, human combatants. Do we know much about the actual logistics of how this worked? I mean, uh, would they? would there just be a tiger and then you have multiple people hunting the tiger or do we, do we know how they set this stuff up kind of the scenarios and what was involved? Uh, we know to a degree. Um, and actually um, that was one of the main points of emphasis of my dissertation. I wasn't just interested in the spectacles themselves. I, I asked the same question you 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 just did. Um, how in the blue blazes <laughs> did the Romans get all of these animals uh, to the Colosseum as well as other venues across the empire? And there is some evidence. Um, we have some epigraphic or inscriptional evidence. Periodically, there's mention in the literary sources. And there's artistic evidence like mosaics periodically depicting animal capture. Um, unfortunately, there isn't quite as much as I would like um, because Roman writers generally 
and this isn't perhaps surprising, but they were generally more interested in the spectacles themselves than mm. the infrastructure behind them. But basically what we know is that in both the later Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, uh, there were, first of all, civilian contractors, we might say. They were, there were civilian individuals uh, who ran hunting groups or hunting organizations, we might say, uh, who captured various animals that could be used in the arena. Uh, and this is particularly prevalent, of course, on the, uh, the frontiers of the empire, mm. particularly prevalent as well in North Africa. Uh, North Africa was a hot spot. Roman territory in North Africa was a hot spot for the animal spectacles, uh, in part at least because so many of the, the exotic animals the Romans liked to see in their spectacles were available in North Africa, lions and, uh, and so forth. But in addition to uh, these civilian contractors, we know that Roman soldiers would occasionally go on animal capturing expeditions as well. You know, when they weren't involved in active combat or what, what have you, uh, when they had some downtime, they would go out um, and capture various animals. Uh, we know from one inscription, for example, that Roman troops stationed on the German frontier around what is now the city of Cologne, uh, they would go forth, small groups, and capture bears. Um, and more famously, perhaps, we have... And an inscription from what is now Bulgaria from a major Roman fort on the lower Danube, where a number of troops from that fort's garrison were involved in capturing animals and shipping them back to Rome. And we know in this instance that they were shipping these animals that they had captured back to Rome for a particularly <laughs> magnificent spectacle currently being staged by the, em the emperor Antoninus Pius. And this is basically in the mid second century CE. And again, Antoninus Pius was staging this animal spectacle, at least in part to emphasize the extent of the Roman empire through, you know, all of the animals that were being displayed to symbolically uh, symbolize his power over nature and so forth. So evidently, when he is preparing this magnificent spectacle, he spared no expense. Mm -hmm. And in addition to whatever civilian contractors were involved, um, Antoninus Pius also had, you know, Roman military units, at least on occasion, rounding up as many animals as they could uh, as well. Was it common that the emperors and other political people in Rome were so involved in putting on these events and using it to their own ends and PR and stuff like that? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, if you look, well, basically what you have from the outset of animal spectacles in Rome, and this is true for gladiatorial spectacles as well. Um, in the Republican period, 
Roman political leaders running for high office. Um, they would normally stage such spectacles as a way to win public support and votes. So this, yeah, the staging of these spectacles was used basically as a political tool, we might say. And if you look at the last century of the Republic in this same vein, uh, the spectacle staged first of all by Pompey and then later by his, his rival Julius Caesar, they are unparalleled <laughs> in their magnificence. Um, now we're told that in the case of Julius Caesar, he himself personally wasn't too excited by the spectacles that, you know, there's one record allegedly of him uh, reading <laughs> during a spectacle rather than watching what was going on um, in the arena below him. But nonetheless, Caesar being, one might argue, a consummate politician in many respects, he realized that even if he wasn't enthralled with the spectacle, so to speak, that in order to solidify his support in Rome, he had to stage these events on as lavish a spectacle as or as lavish a scale, I should say, as possible. And under the empire, even though the emperors are no longer running for office, um, nonetheless, they realize that in order to keep up their popularity, it's in their best interest to stage gladiatorial and animal spectacles uh, as well. And what happens under the empire is that, at least in Rome, the imperial family basically has a monopoly on the staging of such events. Uh, because, of course, they don't want any outsider staging such events uh, and winning enough popular support to theoretically launch a coup or what have you. Uh, so the emperors, even though they're no longer using the spectacles uh, to win formal political votes, nonetheless, they realize that it's in their best interest to stage these spectacles uh, to keep up their public popularity. And what happens over time, just as had happened in the Republic, was that these spectacles keep growing and growing, generally speaking, as one emperor tries to outdo the magnificence of the spectacles staged by his predecessors in the past. And speaking of this evolving and, and growing to such an important feature of Roman life, uh, can you talk a little bit about the Colosseum and what role it played and when, when it became, you know, when it was built and uh, I'm, I'm imagining that this stuff was going on long before the Colosseum became the focal point. Uh, but what role did it have in Rome? Well, um, yeah, you're certainly right to say that uh, these events were going on before the Colosseum. Um, the Colosseum actually, even though it's synonymous with, you know, the Roman arena today, it's a relatively late development. Um, the Colosseum is basically built in the late first century CE. Um, Okay. during the Flavian dynasty. And the Flavian dynasty is the imperial dynasty which succeeds uh, the emperor Nero. Um, in 68, 
<laughs> there is an uprising against Nero, uh, which ultimately causes Nero to take his own life. There's about a year of civil war after Nero's death. And then out of this chaos, the Flavian dynasty emerges, beginning with the emperor Vespasian. And the building of the Colosseum, first of all, in some respects, is a brilliant public relations coup on the part of Vespasian as, and his advisors, because the site of the Colosseum during the reign of Nero um, was part of his massive estate, his massive private estate, which he had built in the heart of Rome, the so-called Golden House of Nero. And this was a magnificent estate with, with the surrounding grounds. Um, which was uh, forbidden to the common people of Rome. Uh, <laughs> this was Nero's pleasure palace in the heart of the city, basically. Um, so what Vespasian does when he becomes emperor, he opens up the grounds of the Domus Aria. So it's no longer private property. This is now open to the Roman people. And he not only does that, but he builds this massive arena again for the Roman people, for the pleasure of the Roman people. So this site that had once been solely for the pleasure of the tyrannical emperor Nero is now this massive stadium seating approximately 50,000 people. You know, it's on par with a lot of modern stadiums even today. Yeah. Um, now you have this public venue with which Vespas Vespasian is demonstrating his munificence to the Roman people. And one other note I should make perhaps in this regard, uh, in case you're wondering about the name, uh, <laughs> on the site of the Colosseum during the reign of Nero, when this land had been part of the, the so-called Golden House, Nero had erected a massive colossal statue of himself. Uh, <laughs> Nero was not a horribly modest individual. Well, when Vespasian built a Colosseum, he doesn't tear this colossal statue down, but he replaces the head. He makes it a statue of the sun rather than a statue of the hated Emperor Nero. So this is where the name comes from, the Colosseum, or the common name, uh, because of the fact that this colossal statue stood beside uh, the Colosseum. Um, so again, the building of the Colosseum is a great public relations coup for the, for the new Flavian dynasty. It helps solidify public support for this new dynasty. Uh, it provides a much superior venue for um, the staging of various spectacles in Rome, much superior to what had existed previously. And one other note on the building of the Colosseum I might mention, uh, it has been proven through epigraphic evidence that the Flavians directly used uh, plunder from the suppression of the contemporary Jewish revolt for the funding of the Colosseum. So the Colosseum is a structure that's built in large part at least out of war booty. 
uh, the plunder which the Romans had um, had gained from suppressing the Jewish revolt. And the Jewish revolt, or this particular Jewish revolt, uh, is one which breaks out during the reign of Nero and continues uh, throughout the period of civil war following the death of Nero. Uh, this is where the events at Masada occur and so forth when uh, a number of Jews commit suicide, uh, realizing their cause is lost. But again, Vespasian took much of the plunder from this particular campaign and devoted it towards the building of the Colosseum. Mm, I didn't know that. Well, I want to ask you about pop culture a little bit. In my lifetime, when I hear the word Colosseum, Gladiator, I think of Russell Crowe. Yes, yeah. That, that movie came out when I was probably about 15 years old. And it was one of the first R-rated type movies I saw. And it was, you know, it won Best Picture, it won Best yeah. Actor, et cetera, et cetera. What was your reaction to that film? Um, it's a very entertaining film. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't have any um, major criticism of it in terms of being entertained by it. But like many historical features, um, and this, you know, holds true for other historical periods, not just antiquity, but like many other historical features, um, one can quibble with some of the details presented uh, <laughs> within, right. within um, that particular film. Now, it does depict a little bit, you know, the infrastructure behind the games, you know, that these, you know, this troop of gladiators uh, arrives in Rome. Um, and in the arena, of course, uh, one of the more memorable scenes is the one where Russell Crowe is fighting um, that big gladiator who comes out of retirement. Right. Uh, it's, it's been several years since I've seen the movie. So if my yeah. <laughs> recollection's a bit fuzzy, I apologize. No, that's accurate. But in the midst of fighting this guy, the tiger comes up out of the trap door and the floor and attacks him. Um, now that has some basis in reality because in the Colosseum and other large venues like that, particularly in North Africa, you would have a complicated basement infrastructure, we might say, where basically not only animals, but other props for the arena could be kept in this basement until the time when they were to appear in the arena. And animal cages indeed through a pulley system could be lifted up from this basement to the arena floor. So the bit again, where this tiger springs out of the ground uh, through this trap door to attack Russell Crowe, um, that is something in and of itself, which could have occurred and did occur in the Coliseum. Now, there are some problems with the equipment depicted. Um, the gladiatorial equipment depicted in that movie isn't horribly accurate. Uh, just to give you one quick example, uh, again, that retired gladiator fighting Russell Crowe, uh, you may remember he has that full face silver mask. Yes. Uh, that is a mask the Romans used or a helmet the Romans used, but it was a ceremonial cavalry mask. 
It was a mask or a helmet that the Roman cavalry would wear on parade. It wasn't a mask that uh, that that was used in the arena. In fact, I don't know if you've seen pictures, but a lot of the gladiatorial mat, uh, helmets, which have been discovered in Pompeii and so forth, they're very elaborate. They have wide brims, the elaborate face shield, and so forth. Um, because particularly in the case of more prominent gladiators, uh, they wanted the gladiator in question to be wearing his Sunday best, so to speak, to be wearing not just run-of-the-mill equipment, but quite uh, elaborate equipment and armor in order to add to his mystique. And one <laughs> final note pertaining to gladiator, you know, I thought Joaquin Phoenix did a great job portraying Commodus. In fact, I believe he was nominated for an Oscar, if I remember correctly. But they actually could have gone into more detail about the eccentricities of Commodus mm -hmm. and uh, his fighting in the arena. Because Commodus was one of the relatively few uh, emperors who wasn't just content to sit back and watch the animals and gladiators killed in the arena in his name. Uh, he actually got his hands dirty on occasion uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like the movie was, it took some, it kind of created its own narrative with some of the existing history. And, you know, when I remember reading about yes. it, it, it kind of, it, it clearly is not literal history, but it's, it's drawing on some of the, some of what we know about different historical figures. Yes. Yeah, and I should have mentioned that from the top that um, the whole story of Gladiator, yeah, as you say, that's largely a literary concoction. In fact, the plot of Gladiator is largely ripped off of <laughs> a 60s sand and, uh, sword and sandal epic with Alec Guinness and Sophia Loren, uh, The Fall of the Roman Empire. Hmm. Uh, and in that movie, um, bit of patriotism here but in that movie Canada's own Christopher Plummer plays Commodus uh so that's worth a viewing if you haven't seen that but um yeah uh Commodus unlike what's suggested in the movie Gladiator um he reigned for 13 years so he wasn't overthrown you know in a matter of months as seems to be suggested uh right. by the movie Gladiator so this brings me to the question of who were the gladiators and were they, were they, were they slaves? Were they people that were willing to fight for money that were free citizens? Were they, you know, soldiers and warriors? I mean, I, what was, what's the profile of the average person that was actually fighting? Yeah. Well, it, uh, it varied somewhat as you, as you suggested. Um, in the Republic, when gladiatorial games in Rome get going, uh, the largest component of gladiators are captured prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Romans in the later Republic, during their expansion across the Mediterranean, they're capturing literally tens of thousands of uh, prisoners of war. And unfortunately, reducing the, the vast majority to uh, the condition of slavery. And a substantial number of these enslaved prisoners of war end up in the arena as gladiators. And in fact, um, the earliest 
types of gladiators that we see recorded in Roman sources, uh, they're generally named after various defeated opponents of Rome. So, so we have a Samnite type of gladiator from central Italy. We have Gauls, we have Thracians, and so forth. Now, over time, uh, as we move into the later Republic and uh, the Empire, um, the composition or the origin of the gladiators changes somewhat. Um, as we move into the Empire, Rome, of course, is largely done with her wars of expansion. She isn't capturing as many prisoners. So prisoners of war at this point aren't as important a supply, a potential supply for gladiators. But first and foremost, as you suggest, uh, another source of gladiators was slaves. Hmm. Uh, slaves could be sold to the arena. Uh, and you also had condemned criminals. One of the judicial punishments enacted by the Romans for various serious offenses, uh, you could be condemned to fight in the arena. Mm. Now, in most cases, of course, this would be a death sentence uh, because most of those condemned to the arena likely didn't have a great deal of fighting experience but it did offer a slim chance if you were any good at it, um, if you were proficient enough as a gladiator to eventually win your freedom. So slaves could um, be condemned to the arena. And as you mentioned, on occasion, you also had free men who would volunteer to fight in the arena, strange as that may sound. Um, and the reasons for this, well, in many cases, I think one of the main reasons was that the individual in question was destitute. He really had no better options on the table. Uh, so he would sign up <laughs> or consign himself to a gladiatorial barrack, where at least he would be promised three square meals a day uh, for the remainder of his life, however long that was. Um, but in addition to these destitute individuals who um, would, would sign up to a gladiatorial training school and the like, you also have individuals who were attracted by the fame. Um, and what is certainly one thing to note once you became a gladiator, you lost your citizen rights. Oh. So socially speaking, uh, you were re regarded as no better than a slave. Wow. You were the lowest of the low in the eyes of the law. But on the other hand, <laughs> gladiators like, you know, modern day sporting sports celebrities, a number of them could nonetheless achieve a great deal of popularity um, within the Roman audience. So there's this dichotomy between the, the very low social status of the gladiators on the one hand, and on the other hand, nonetheless, the personal celebrity that some of the most prominent gladiators could achieve. And again, some individuals, 
<laughs> were so attracted by this idea of celebrity that of their own free will, they would um, volunteer to become gladiators. But uh, the much higher number, of course, would be slaves or criminals condemned to fight in the arena, as well as periodically prisoners of war that the Romans would continue to capture from time to time. And it was possible, like you said, to to uh, win your freedom, so to speak. And if there was a, uh, you know, I would just imagine if you had a gladiator that was exceptional and was winning all kinds of these spectacles that, you know, it, was there ever any interest in bringing them into the formal army or anything like that? Do we have any? Um, well, um there were a couple of crisis situations uh, <laughs> where <laughs> the Romans enlisted some gladiators uh, when they just, you know, suffered a uh, major defeat and temporarily uh, needed to enlist some slaves and gladiators into the army. But the most important step the Romans took in this regard, at least in the, in the late Republic, uh, we're informed that at that time in the in the uh, in the late republic, the Romans actually enlisted gladiatorial trainers to train their regular troops. Mm. So they took some trainers from the gladiatorial barracks and brought them to the army to trade them in better techniques of swordcraft or what have you. So um, gladiators did not normally themselves participate in the army except on one or two crisis occasions, we might say, but we, we certainly have evidence that at least in the, in the late Republic, gladiatorial trainers uh, were used for the Roman military. Wow. So some of the techniques and methods of fighting were relevant to the army. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there any evidence of women participating in any of the gladiator games? Yes, yes. Um, we have both literary and artistic evidence to show that, yes, on occasion, women would fight as gladiators. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this particular phenomenon, which was frowned upon by many Romans at the time, um, was done prim primarily to increase the attractiveness or the popularity, we might say, of a given spectacle. Because as I mentioned earlier, it was common for those putting on the spectacles to try and outdo the spectacles of the past. And one way to outdo these previous spectacles was through novelty. So any sort of innovation you could introduce, be it... Um, introducing new animals to the arena, introducing new types of gladiators or new types of combat. Uh, these would be experimented with. And <laughs> one of these innovations that we have evidence for, at least on occasion, is, as you say, women fighting in, in the arena. So one thing I also came across in your work was the uh, the idea that some of these games were set up to reenact or somehow invoke mythological stories or historical 
stories uh, from earlier times in Roman history. Can you talk a little bit about about that? I know they did touch on that in the film Gladiator. Yes, yeah. I remember yeah. all the details, but they kind of announce that it's this reenactment, and then obviously it famously the result is reversed in the movie, which yes. causes you know the crowd to react. And so how did the role of mythology and history play into these games? Um, well, first of all, in regard to the historical events, uh, as you say, and as again was depicted in Gladiator, periodically, and this this again goes back to the late Republic, periodically, Roman spectacle organizers would stage mass battles, uh, which in many cases were meant to recollect uh, battles of the past. Mm. Uh, and this, this was particularly prevalent in the so-called uh, Naumachiae. And the Naumachiae were these naval battles <laughs> where in most cases, the Romans would find a lake <laughs> Um, they'd fill a number of vessels with, um, condemned criminals, slaves, um, and then they divide these ships into two sides, which were again, meant to represent, um, the two combatants in some famous naval battle from the past, be it the Athenians and the Syracusans or what have you. And then they'd let them go at it. Um, and, you know, this was a novelty, this sort of mass combat that the Roman audience didn't see every day. Uh, it was evidently quite enjoyable. And as you touched upon, another way in which, say, an emperor staging such a display could demonstrate his alleged power was through changing the result <laughs> by having the side which had lost the historical battle nonetheless win the reenactment so um you know symbolically one can perhaps think of this as the emperor having the power to overturn history um now the mythological reenactments they were primarily done in the context of criminal executions uh, during what I loosely called earlier the halftime show. Um, now, criminal executions, you know, where you're having people wheeled out to the arena or brought out to the arena floor and burned at the stake or um, have them attacked by, by lions and other animals. This, of course, is where we get the proverbial expression, so-and-so being thrown to the lions. Mm -hmm. um, through repetition, they could become somewhat mundane. Um, so what we have in the early empire is a number of these reenactments, or sorry, a number of these executions, I should say, being staged on an elaborate scale as reenactments of the death of uh, popular figures from myth. And, you know, one such uh, reenactment we hear of is uh, 
and this deviates somewhat from the myth, but Orpheus, who was famous among other things for playing music so sweet that he could tame even the wild animals. Um, what you had on one occasion was a criminal, condemned criminal, evidently meant to portray Orpheus, who's brought out to the arena floor and ultimately surrounded by animals who end up killing him and tearing him uh, apart. Um, and one of the more grisly such um, mythical reenactments when it comes to uh, criminal executions, um, if you think of the myth of the Minotaur, um, the Minotaur, this half man, half bull creature, basically resulted from the lust which Queen Pasiphaea felt for the prize bull in her husband, King Minos's herd. Uh, and eventually they had unnatural relations, we might say, and the Minotaur resulted from this union. Well, unfortunately, and again, this is quite a grisly example, but uh, we know from ancient testimony that on one occasion, at least, the Romans took a woman who had been condemned to death and basically set it up so that the woman in question was mauled to death by a bull on the arena floor. And this mauling of this poor woman was again meant to reflect the union between Pasiphaea and the bull in myth, which gave rise to the Minotaur. Um, so the Romans could certainly be very inventive indeed, albeit in the cruelest manner thinkable, uh, in order again to liven up their events with novelties like these mass combats um, reflecting actual battles of the past or these mythical reenactments which considerably spiced up, so to speak, the more mundane executions which were staged in the arena on a regular basis. Yeah. It was like part of the marketing was figuring sort out. Sort of, yeah. What yeah. Would bring, yeah. What would bring the most people in? Yeah. And actually, uh, if you look at some of the inscriptions, uh, you know, commemorating various events at the arena, um, it would often be specifically mentioned that we will have condemned criminals mm. at this event, or i.e. there will be criminal executions, which, yeah, was another way to draw in the crowd, at least in the minds of uh, Roman spectacle organizers. Wow. Well, Chris, this conversation has really reignited my interest in the gladiators. There's so much about this I had no idea about. I find that... Uh, the animal spectacles to be among the most interesting aspects of all of this. Um, I'll remind listeners that we're talking to Chris Eplett about his work in the ancient world. He's the author of Gladiators, Deadly Arena Sports of Ancient Rome, and he's one of the world's top experts in this stuff. So uh, before we wrap up, uh, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what your current research interests are and and where people can can follow your work and that kind of thing. Well, um, at the moment, um, 
and this is a long-term project which uh has been delayed somewhat by various issues i won't go into into detail but uh, at the moment my main priority is finishing a larger work a more detailed work specifically on the roman animal spectacles mm. um but yeah other things other projects i have on the go deal more with military history uh there's nothing really out at the moment nothing concrete out at the moment but um a lot of my other work at the moment deals with uh the roman frontier hmm. uh particularly the the roman frontier the rhine and danube frontier of the early roman empire under augustus um and the problems which occurred under Augustus. Uh, as you may know, um, one of the worst Roman military defeats in their history occurred under Augustus on the German frontier when they lost three legions. And as a result, they had to pull back the frontier to the Rhine River. Uh, they were in the process of consolidating much of what, what is now Western Germany into a new Roman province, but when they suffered this this massive defeat <laughs> they had to pull back the frontier to the rhine so um one of the other non-spectacle projects i'm working on um is again the problems of the roman frontier under augustus and what factors gave rise to these uh to these problems so uh those are a couple of the projects i'm working on uh on uh currently great well we'll definitely keep an eye out for that and share those when they come out and your book about gladiators is available on amazon um so really i just want to say thanks for coming on and shedding new light on on uh gladiatorial combat and the spectacles of ancient rome and all the other subjects that you touched on and hopefully we'll get to talk again soon sometime oh sounds good patrick and thank you very much for having me Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.